Yay nay oh man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is the week of the Film Bath Festival. And I have screenings every day this week, except today. So now is the time for me to record my standard episode for the releases of the current week, as well as some of the mountain of stuff I've got to watch at home. So in this episode, I will be reviewing the cinematic films, the National Geographic documentary The Rescue, which is quasi-cinematic at best, as well as the one really big release of this week, or at least the most anticipated film of this week, Last Night in Soho. On streaming platforms, I have caught up with the broad American comedy Lady of the Manor, as well as the intense serial killer-esque film No Man of God. And... Bringing a bit of brightness and levity to the mix, the Netflix film I've managed to catch up with this week is My Little Pony, A New Generation. So a mix of stuff in this particular episode. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen The Rescue is a National Geographic documentary which had and possibly still has, although I find it unlikely, a brief cinematic run before I'm assuming it's going to end up on the Disney Plus streaming platform, which is where National Geographic finds itself under the umbrella of nowadays. But this is a documentary directed by the wife and husband team of Chai Vasaheli and Jimmy Chin who won an Oscar a few years ago for Free Solo. And this is a different aspect of the extreme sports world in telling the fascinating story of the Thai boys soccer team who ended up trapped in a rapidly flooding cave. This was huge news around the world in 2018. And this is one of several film projects which have been made of this story. This documentary, produced by National Geographic, had the rights to the story of the divers who rescued the boys. There's also a Netflix documentary currently in the works, which had the rights to the story of the boys. And I believe there's also a narrative feature about this story as well. So, it really was part of the zeitgeist, this story of these 
Thai boys trapped in a cave. And the extraordinary efforts which were made to rescue them. Honestly, I think the diver's story is perhaps the most interesting because ultimately these 13 boys and their coach just sat there and waited to be rescued. Whereas the enormous logistical and emotional toll of trying to get these boys out is a much, much more fascinating story. These self-effacing amateurs, essentially, who just go cave diving for fun, it turns out they were exactly the people that were needed. I mean, the Thai Navy SEALs attempted to dive into these caves, these flooded caves, and rescue the boys, but they couldn't manage it. And indeed, in the process, one of these Navy SEALs from Thailand, unfortunately, died. It turns out these amateurs who just do it for fun were exactly the people that were needed because cave diving is such a specific thing that only a very, very few people actually do it. And they just do it for fun at the weekends. In fact, I got a shiver of recognition, and I think many people in my audience that I saw this film with got a shiver of recognition because one of the caves which we see them exploring early in the film is in Wookiee Hull which is a cave system in the Cheddar Gorge region, you know, where the cheese comes from. And it is a local tourist attraction here in Somerset. I've been to Wookiee Hole many times in my youth, and seeing them cave diving in a flooded part of Wookiee Hole was uh, well, actually kind of cool. But they do this for fun, and it's such a specific thing it's such a weird thing to do. They have to, or at least in the past, they have had to manufacture their own equipment because nobody makes equipment which is suitable for cave diving because it's such a niche thing to do. And that's why these ragtag bag of amateurs from England were the perfect people to rescue these boys in a Thai cave. And despite the best efforts and despite all the good training that the Thai Navy SEALs had, they just were not prepared for diving in caves. And this brings in a whole other aspect of this story. The idea that these people from England, these amateurs for England, are better than the elite Thai military services is a factor. And nationalism and bureaucracy becomes a really big part of this story up on the surface. The idea that something might go bad and everybody thinks there's absolutely no way we're getting everybody out of this alive. It just can't be done. Everybody thinks at least some of them are going to die. And the Thai government doesn't want that. The world is looking at them and they want a zero-risk solution to this problem. And there's no such thing. This is such a dangerous, such an unusual situation that there is no zero-risk solution. And waiting for one to magically appear 
is essentially wasting the time of the people underground. And the procrastination and the concerns about we cannot let anybody die. Well, if you leave them down there, they are going to die. So it's really interesting seeing the politics and the nationalism become a part of this. And it's utter, utter chaos. I mean, very, very early in the situation, these divers, you know, go in, you know, an exploratory diver. I mean, what exactly are we dealing with? They go in and, oh, look, there's some people already here. And it turns out those were people, those were full workers who were sent in to put water pumps in the cave and they were forgotten about. And there were four people who were underground for about a day and nobody noticed they were missing. And they had to be rescued before anybody else could even do. I mean, kilometres into this incredibly long cave system. So, what the hell are we doing here? I mean, there's a point pretty early in the process where these English cave divers just give up. And so, it is impossible. I mean, and then eventually they, they do find the boys, and now what? Yes, we found them. Yes, miraculously, they're all alive. But now what? How the fuck are we going to get them out of this cave? You know, a kilometre into this flooded cave system. It just can't be done, can it? Until you come up with an incredibly risky solution, but it turns out to be the only solution. So, again, there is no such thing as a zero-risk solution. And, yeah, it's fascinating seeing these people making these decisions going through the process how are we going to do this what are we going to do is there any way we can do this and these ordinary people put under enormous pressure by the media circus by the governmental aspects i mean there's a real chance that if something does go wrong and if some of these kids do die the divers themselves will be arrested by the Thai authorities. That's a genuine concern. It all happens, and it all happens remarkably well. I mean, there's a lot of footage that the divers shot themselves, that the Thai Navy SEALs shot themselves, that you know the media circus frenzy on the surface shot. There's a lot of footage of the actual events, but there's no footage of the actual rescue being taken. So. Some of the sequences in this film are recreated. They did go to a studio in England with the real divers and some of the real people and recreated what they did and how they did it. And these recreations are very, very good. I mean, you you cannot spot the seams. I mean, you know that there have to have been recreations because you cannot possibly have shot everything that well, that well lit, that deep underground. So you know there must be reconstructions involved. But they're seamless. They're very, very well done. The impression I get of Chai Vasaheli and Jimmy Chin as a directing team, as a married couple, is that... Chai Vasaheli does the human stories, does the interviews, does the emotion of the thing. Whereas Jimmy Chin, who has a background as a climber, 
his responsibility is the action stuff. So I don't know this for sure, but the impression that I get is that Chai Vasaheli did all the interviews, did all the talking heads with the people who were involved, and apparently most of it was done over Zoom, given the current circumstances, and that makes it even more impressive, quite frankly. And then Jimmy Chin did all the reconstructions and all the action stuff. I don't know that for sure, but that is the impression I get. And it's a combination that works. I mean, it worked very well in Free Solo. I mean, once again, I think one of the aspects, although it's not as strong an aspect as it is in Free Solo, one of the aspects of this film is examining the mentality of these divers. These people who willingly dive underground in incredibly dangerous circumstances. There are so many people who die cave diving. And they do it for fun. They are weekend warriors who have you know day jobs. I mean, one of them's a retired firefighter. I mean, of the main people who went over there. One of them's an IT consultant. Eventually a whole team gets sent over and there's, you know, a contractor there's an electrician there's a meteorologist i mean they all have day jobs and they choose to spend their weekends deep underground with very little chance of rescue if anything goes wrong diving in caves and what is the mentality of that i mean that is briefly explored but not to any great detail and there's one other detail which is in this film, which I find absolutely astonishing. It's such an extraordinary coincidence, and in my opinion, really not enough is made of this coincidence. One of these divers, just before this incident happened, and I mean just before this incident happened, was spending a lot of time and possibly even forming a relationship with a Thai nurse. And she went home from England to Thailand as this incident was happening, and it was in her home region. So one of these divers had somebody he was possibly in a relationship with or or starting a relationship with on the ground in the region. What are the chances of that happening? I mean, really? And not enough is made out of that coincidence. And, quite honestly, not enough is made of that relationship because I'm honestly not sure, judging by the film, what actually happens to that relationship. But yeah, there's so many (laughs) extraordinary things about this story and about this film. I mean, the combination of the incredibly well-reconstructed rescues, the footage that was shot at the time. Every now and again, there's very brief animated sections as well, which are quite well done. So, yeah, it's got lots of visual interest for you, and the story is very, very compelling. I think it is going to be interesting to compare and contrast this to the Netflix documentary when that eventually comes out and the feature film, the narrative feature film, which I think is also in the pipeline. In fact, there seems to be multiple feature films, narrative feature films in the pipeline, one directed by John Chu and one directed by Ron Howard. 
And those are two very different directors, and it's going to be seeing if and when those films ever come out. But regardless, as I said, this is a story which definitely was part of the zeitgeist, and I suppose is part of the zeitgeist. And this is a very efficient, compelling telling of that story. And I do think it's worth checking out. I find it very unlikely that you will still be able to find it in cinemas, but eventually, no doubt, it will be available on the National Geographic channel on your satellite system. And if it isn't already, it soon will be available through Disney+, Plus, I am sure, or Star+, Plus, or whatever their adult strand is called. So eventually you will have options to find it. And I do think it is basically worth watching. So for me, The Rescue is a very high meh. Next up is a film I have been anticipating for well over a year when I first randomly saw the trailer for it at the end of last year. It was supposed to come out a while ago but was delayed due to the pandemic and is the latest film from Edgar Wright and therefore Edgar Wright has two films out cinematically this year following his documentary The Sparks Brothers. But this film is Last Night in Soho in which a somewhat sheltered and somewhat naive young girl from Cornwall, Thomasin Mackenzie, moves to the big city of London in order to attend fashion school. She wants to be a fashion designer and is obsessed with the 1960s and the Carnaby Street feel, the Carnaby Street look. She likes the music, she likes the style, she likes the optimism of the 1960s. Largely, it is implied because that's what her dead mother liked. But she moves to the big city and instantly finds it very, very hard to fit in. The other students at this fashion school are poor little rich girls who only want to be known by one name, who are disparaging about the fact she shows up to the first day of school wearing a dress she has designed herself, rather than what they are wearing, which is, oh yes, this is from that particular designer before she sold out. So she doesn't fit in, and her anxieties and possibly even mental health issues which have been exposed in the opening scenes mean that she runs away to Soho and ends up in a bedsit in a house owned by the late Diana Rigg in what turned out to be her last IMDb profile But she accepts this room in Diana Riggs' house and also, in order to make ends meet, starts working at an Irish pub in Soho run by Pauline McLean. But as she spends time in this room in this house in Soho, she starts having vivid visions of the past, of the Soho of the 1960s when it was still or sleazy sex shops and nude girls and all that kind of stuff. And she finds she is inhabiting the body of a bright-eyed aspiring singer played by Anya Taylor-Joy. 
Anya Taylor-Joy auditions for a position as a singer in a nightclub under the rather skeezy management of Matt Smith. But gradually her Soho dreams gradually start to diminish. And in the future, Thomasin McKenzie also starts experiencing these reversals and also starts getting creeped out by an older gentleman who comes into the pub she works at, played by Terence Stamp, who has eerie parallels to Matt Smith 50-odd years ago. So can this connection through time inform Thomasin McKenzie about her life? Can she figure out what happened to this girl back in the 1960s? And can she be saved from the seemingly dangerous fate which awaits her? When I saw a trailer for this, I thought, oh, look, Edgar Wright's made an out-and-out horror film. And that is kind of what this is. It doesn't have all the usual Edgar Wright ticks and tricks, all his little stylized touches, or at least not as many as he usually does. Mostly this is a supernatural thriller, a ghost story, more than it is a horror film. I mean, yes, it is clear, or we assume that it is clear that Anya Taylor-Joy is not going to end well. She is yet another bright-eyed young woman who has been drawn into the Soho of the 1960s and is going to be chewed up and spat out, thanks to the malevolent presence of her manager. Matt Smith. And as Thomasin McKenzie keeps on experiencing these things, her own issues come to the fore. I mean, the opening scenes of this film, I think, are very, very telling. Thomasin McKenzie is in her house in Redruth, and by the way, I think it was immensely unfair of Edgar Wright to expect a New Zealand actress like Thomasin McKenzie to put on a convincing Cornwall accent. The accent that comes out of Thomasin McKenzie's mouth sounds like nothing I've ever heard before. But anyway, this naive Cornish girl is clearly obsessed with the 1960s. We open with her wearing a huge newspaper dress, very similar to what Cruella was wearing. Emma Stone was wearing in Cruella, and she's dancing around to 60s music. Her bedroom door has Carnaby Street on it, has a sign saying Carnaby Street on it. All the posters on her wall are, you know, Audrey Hepburn and Sean Connery, you know, 1960s icon. She has an old school record player. She is clearly obsessed with the 1960s. And we see on her nightstand, you know, a picture of her mother and her grandmother. Her grandmother being played by Rita Tushingham, of all people, which I think was very interesting casting. But you know, this is clearly something that her mother was into, therefore she is into it, and her mother is no longer in the picture. Until she is. Thomasin McKenzie looks in the mirror, and behind her in the mirror is her dead mother. And I was thinking, okay, you know, filmmaking technique letting the audience see that this is what is on this young girl's mind. 
But when Rita Tushingham, her grandmother, comes into the room and says, oh, is it happening again? How, have you been seeing her again? It becomes clear that similarly to her mother, as we gradually find out, Thomasin McKenzie seems to have some psychological issues, if not outright mental illness. And that puts a very different spin on this whole thing. I mean, is Thomasin McKenzie being haunted by this girl from 50 years ago who seems to have lived in the same bedsit in Soho and seems to be going on a similar path, you know, a naive ingenue entering Soho and potentially being spat out? Or is she simply hallucinating something? Is this a full-on mental breakdown? We're never quite sure. And I think that is one of the things which I find really, really fascinating about this film. Even though one issue I have with Last Night in Soho is the fact I don't believe that Thomasin McKenzie's mental health issues and struggles have been fully dealt with or openly dealt with by the end of the film. There's some stuff which happens right at the end of the film, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you've still got that issue, haven't you? I mean, that hasn't been resolved at all. And there's some genuine concerns, I feel, about Thomas and McKenzie's mental health, even as the credits roll. I don't think this has been dealt with properly. So, yeah, having this ghost story, I mean, this girl from 50 years ago and this girl from today and their connection i mean is it just the fact that they seem to have been living in the same room is it the malevolent influence of diana well malevolence the wrong word but diana rigg is a questionable presence i mean she is the no nonsense take no prisoners not suffering fools gladly old landlady I mean, Diana Rigg was clearly having a whale of a time, and they did have time between when this film was supposed to come out and when it actually came out that there is a Chiron at the beginning of the film saying, for Diana. I mean, and this is, I think, a great way for Diana Rigg to go out in terms of cinema. It doesn't always work like that, but this is a good film, if not arguably a great film that Diana Rigg was in in her last performance. And she had a really good role in it. But the somewhat stern presence of Diana Rigg might be having an influence on this fragile girl as well. You know, her insistence that there are no male visitors, despite the fact that the only nice fellow student that Thomasin McKenzie has is a young black guy, Michael Ajao, who might actually want to get to know her better and actually seems like a decent guy. But there's scenes which don't go particularly well there, particularly when we have an incident at a Halloween party. And these are the moments at which Edgar Wright's stylized sensibilities come to the fore. As in the past... Anya Taylor-Joy's experiences start getting worse and worse, and she realises the cesspool that she has entered in Soho of the 1960s. Things get very fragmented, things get very hallucinatory. Things get very abstract. Things appear 
not as they actually are, but as they feel like they should be. There's a, a really fascinating sequence where there's several conversations happening, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and everybody's saying exactly the same thing. And it's a very pointed way of this story being told, particularly when in the mirror that Anya Taylor-Joy is sitting next to, Thomasin McKenzie is looking on with horror. And the way that mirrors are used in this film, I found absolutely fascinating because in certain places, it is you know, a mirror image. The actions of Anya Taylor-Joy in the past are being directly mirrored by Thomasin McKenzie in the present. At certain points, Thomasin McKenzie is looking through this mirror at what Anya Taylor-Joy is doing and what is being done to her with horror and shock. Occasionally, as I said, there are ghosts in the mirror as well. The way that mirrors and mirror actions are used is very, very good. I mean, the first scene where Thomasin McKenzie experiences the 1960s is very, very well done. We are flitting back and forth between it being Annie Taylor-Joy in this fantastic pink dress, which I think is supposed to evoke the 1960s, but more than anything for me, evoked that Molly Goddard dress that Jodie Comer wore in Killing Eve, that big fluffy tool pink number. But anyway, this fabulous 1960s dress being won by Anya Taylor-Joy and Thomasin McKenzie essentially in her pyjamas, and they're flitting between stages. I mean, at one point it's Matt Smith dancing with both of them and looking at each other through the mirrors and mirroring each other's actions. And also sometimes breaking that. I mean, as I said, sometimes Thomas and McKenzie is looking on in horror at what Anya Taylor-Joy is doing. So it, it, it's a really fascinating use of mirrors. One I'm not really sure I've seen all that much before, but I think it's very, very effective. And some fascinating filmmaking techniques. I mean, that opening scene where Thomas and McKenzie slash Anya Taylor-Joy or Thomasin McKenzie inhabiting the body of Annie Taylor-Joy, enters the Café de Paris, this swanky Soho nightclub where Scylla Black is singing, and how she dances with Matt Smith, how she is swept up in this fantasy that she has lived her entire life dreaming about. She specifically says at one point, if I could live anywhere and any time, I would live in London in the 1960s. She is that obsessed. This is her happy place until it isn't. I mean, there is a razor, razor thin line between glamour and sleaze, and eventually the sleaze does come in, and then much more abstract things start happening, much more hallucinatory things start happening. And Edgar Wright has fun with those as well. So, yeah, it's... I think a film about the dangers of nostalgia, I think it's a film about the dangers of glamour and being sucked into a world of glamour you aren't necessarily prepared for. I think this would make a very, very good double feature with Nicholas Winding Refn's film The Neon Demon. I think it has lots of different things on its mind. Uh, it does have some interesting directions it goes in. I mean, one revelation towards the end i picked up a little bit too quickly i think i, I started wondering oh i wonder if that's character's going to be that 
and it was. And I think I wasn't supposed to pick up on that quite so quickly. But it's still a beautiful revelation and a really nice, elaborate, heightened way for the film to end. I mean, this is, in many ways, an over-the-top film, an elaborate film, a stylized film. But I think it really, really works. I think all around the acting is excellent. Both Thomas and McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy are fantastic. Diana Rigg, in a very significant supporting role, is excellent. Pauline McGlynn is barely in the film, but she makes absolutely everything out of her role as the Irish barmaid or you know, the owner of the Irish pub. And yeah, it's... It's a kaleidoscope <laughs> in a couple of places. It's literally a kaleidoscope of experiences. I think it's very well directed. It's very well acted. I wouldn't say it's an out-and-out horror film. I would say it's a supernatural thriller come ghost story, possibly a film about mental illness as well, which, again, I don't think is fully addressed in the film, the mental health aspects of the story. But I think that's a minor criticism in a, a film which I otherwise really, really enjoyed. I did thoroughly enjoy Last Night in Soho, and for me, it is a yay. Home Movies Lady of the Manor is written and directed by the Long Brothers, Christian Long and Justin Long. Justin Long is a long-standing comedian actor very recognisable in lots of sitcoms and comedic movies. Christian Long, however, seems to be mostly famous for being the brother of Justin Long. But together they have written and directed this film, which stars Melanie Linsky. Now, I love Melanie Linsky. I think she's an awesome comedic actress as well as a serious actress. I mean, she was in Heavenly Creatures all those years ago. She was also in But I'm a Cheerleader. And I might actually be watching But I'm a Cheerleader this coming Thursday at the Film Bath Festival. On Thursday, I've got three films on. The first one at 11am, the last one at 9pm. But there's a gap in the middle, and one of the films in that gap is But I'm a Cheerleader, because they're doing some repertory screenings at the festival this year as well. So I might end up watching Boss I'm a Cheerleader on the big screen because that is an awesome film. And Melody Linsky is awesome in it, as is Natasha Leon and Clea Duval and RuPaul <laughs> without any drag effect. But anyway, Melody Linsky is awesome. And in this film, she plays a directionless 30-something she has a job as not a drug dealer, but a drug deliverer. She gets a text message from a dealer saying, take the product to this address and everybody's fine. This is perfect for her since she can just sit around on her couch all day getting stoned, much to the exasperation of her boyfriend. But after a misunderstanding at one of these drug deals or drug deliveries, ends up with her in jail and with a criminal record as a sex offender, which I will be getting onto in a minute, 
she is kicked out of her house by her boyfriend and goes to the nearest bar to drown her sorrows, where she is essentially picked up by Ryan Felipe, who is the poor little rich boy, white privilege, rich son of one of the affluent families of Savannah, Georgia, where they are living. And Ryan Felipe says, I can give you a job. At my historic manor of Savannah, Georgia, I need somebody to dress up as the old lady of the manor and give tours. And with no other options, Melanie Linsky agrees to this, despite the fact it's clearly an opportunity for Ryan Felipe to get in her pants. But at that point, she doesn't particularly care. So this completely unqualified train wreck of a woman starts giving these tours. And one of the first tours she gives is witnessed by a local history professor, played by Justin Long, who instantly says, what are you doing? You know absolutely nothing about this house. You are making a mockery of this whole situation. But many years he says, I know, but I'm desperate, and Justin Long lets her off the hook. But who doesn't let Manny Linsky off the hook is the ghost of the actual Lady of the Manor, played by Judy Greer, who is horrified that this uncouth and sexually active train wreck of a woman is pretending to be her in her stately manor in Savannah, Georgia. And the ghost of Judy Greer takes it upon herself to teach Manny Linsky to be a lady and to adequately show the history of this house. So how will Manny Leninsky deal with the aggressive advances of Ryan Felipe, the rather sweet advances of Justin Long, and constantly being under the thumb of the ghost of the house, Judy Greer? This is one of those films that doesn't realise just how wrong it is. A lot of this is pretty broad, pretty standard humour, a little bit lowbrow for mainstream taste. I mean, there's a running scatological gag, which is completely unnecessary. But certain things are played for laughs, which really, really shouldn't be. And they didn't particularly need to be in the film, or at least not in this format. I mean, mostly this is a gentle, high-concept comedy about a train wreck of a woman getting her shit together with the influence of a 19th-century ghost. But there's a gag about Melanie Linsky being a sex offender. I mean, this is a total misunderstanding and totally unjustified she does not deserve this moniker being put upon her, but Melanie Linsky reacts to it like, oh, I guess I'm a sex offender now, let's go drink. And wait, no, deal with this. There is a genuine injustice here. And the final gag of the film is related to this. And that does not land because, as I said, most of this is a gentle, high concept comedy. And then suddenly, oh yeah, she's a sex offender and we're going to address that. And more than anything, the thing which bothers me about Lady of the Manor is the character of Ryan Felipe. 
Now, he is the poor little rich boy. I mean, he's a trust fund baby. His dad owns this stately manor in Savannah, Georgia, and is running for mayor of Savannah, Georgia. And his ne'er-do-well son just mooches around, having sex with anybody he fancies. He says him and his buddies are making an app, which is basically Uber again. I mean, and we've already got Lyft, so what the fuck? He's a douchebag. And the very first time we are introduced to him, his parents essentially threaten to cut him off, so he throws a tantrum, and he's in his you know, stately manor home. So the girl who is currently doing the tours dressed as the lady of the manor, he catches the end of one of these tours and says, hey, that was a, a nice performance. Hey, do you fancy coming to me for a drink? And the girl says, uh, no thanks, I've got a boyfriend. So Ryan Felipe instantly fires her for no reason other than the fact that she won't sleep with him and instantly goes off to the nearest bar where she finds the very drunk and very desperate Melanie Linsky, who is clearly unqualified for the position and offers her the job to give these costumed tours. Yes, Ryan Felipe is supposed to be a douchebag. He's supposed to be the villain of the piece, the antagonist of the piece. I don't think he was supposed to be outright evil. And that is what Ryan Felipe comes across as. He is outright evil. And it's supposed to be a gag. And it's just not funny. There is a catastrophic lack of awareness in this film from both the characters and, I think, the filmmakers. They don't realise just what problematic territories they are going into. I mean, as I said, this film was shot in Savannah, Georgia. I mean, a lot of films end up being shot in Georgia because of tax breaks, despite the fact that they have some very, very restrictive far-right laws on their books. There are certain actresses, like Kristen Wiig has said she will refuse to shoot a film in Georgia until they address some of their transphobic local statutes. But regardless, a lot of stuff gets filmed in Georgia. And this film is set in Savannah, Georgia. And one of the characters is a 19th century Southern Belle woman, played by Judy Greer. And one of the subplots is her relationship with her black servant, whose descendants are currently the housekeeper slash manager of the property and her brother's the handyman. And yeah, the black servants of this environment in both history and the present day, are we going to address the racial elements? Are we going to even mention the word slavery? No, we're not. Instead, we're going to have gags about sex offenders and entitled white men coercing women into sex. What is the tone of this film? I mean, yes, the black characters are portrayed very sympathetically and they end up in a very, very good place by the end of the film. I mean, a too good place by the end of the film. The easy way in which the black characters are dealt with at the end, that would absolutely not happen in the real world. There would definitely be some questions. I mean, 
even if they weren't black people, this black brother and sister who are the, the housekeepers of this house, there would be some major questions asked about the way this film ends. But they're black siblings in Savannah, Georgia. So that would mean even more questions about the ways this film ends. And we're just not going to address it. The racial politics of this film are absent. They're just completely absent. The fact that black people get a raw deal is kind of baked into the film, but other than that, it's nothing. So we're not going to address racism, but we are going to have gags about predatory sexual advances, whether intentional or completely accidental. And we're also going to have a running gag about farting. I mean, what the hell? It's so frustrating because at its centre, I think there is some good stuff here. I mean, this idea of a completely inappropriate woman being taught to be a lady by the ghost of somebody who was brought up in that kind of environment, there is something there. I mean, yes, I think the relationship between the ghost and Melanie Linsky happens too quickly. I think the collaboration between... Manny Lilinski and this ghost happens too quickly. There's not enough questioning, you know, how high am I right now or how mentally ill am I right now? She accepts that, oh, okay, there's a ghost. She's trying to teach me to be a lady and it happens more or less instantaneously. So that's a little bit quick. But other than that, I mean, other than some pacing problems, I think the basic core story of this is not too bad, and it has an excellent cast. I mean, I really, really like Melanie Linsky. I really like Judy Greer and Justin Long. I don't see Ryan Philippe that much anymore, but he's perfectly fine. So yeah, I like the cast, and as I always say, I like it when actors step behind the camera. So I really was intrigued by this film, but there's enough small things which are wrong with this film that eventually it snowballs and i just can't say i think this film worked there are some good moments there are some funny interactions but there's enough small things wrong with lady of the manor that i can't i don't think in good conscience support it i don't think it's worth paying for i think you you might have a nice enough time watching it but there are many many different issues so i think i am going to have to give this film a really really high nay i don't like doing it it's not a passionate disapproval but there's enough things wrong with lady of the manor that i can't give it even a remotely positive review so for me lady of the manor available on streaming platforms is a really really high nay or an incredibly low meh but take your pick it's on that borderline next up we have another film on streaming platforms no man of god this is directed by amber seeley 
who doesn't have a lot of stuff in her background, and is written by Kit Lesser, which is actually a pseudonym for C. Robert Cargill, who started out as a film reviewer, occasional podcaster, but has written some really good films over the years, mostly horror films. He wrote Sinister and Sinister 2, and when the director of those horror films got tapped up by Marvel to do Doctor Strange, he also wrote that. He's also written the forthcoming The Black Phone, which looks like a really, really interesting and disturbing horror film. But yeah, C. Robert Cargill is a well-regarded writer of horror movies, and I believe he's also written some horror novels as well. But this is him in much more serious mode, in dealing with the real-life relationship between convicted serial killer Ted Bundy and FBI agent Bill Hegmeyer. A lot of this film is based on the transcripts and the recordings that Bill Hagmeyer made, as over the course of several years between 1984 and Bundy's execution in 1989, Bill Hagmeyer, who was one of the founders of the profiling departments of the FBI, the Behavioral Sciences Unit, he interviewed Bundy in order to understand him. And a lot of this film is just these conversations. It's two men in a room having conversations. One of them a convicted serial killer, one of them an FBI agent trying to understand them. Both of them intelligent, both with psychology degrees, and both trying to get the upper hand on each other. And that is a fascinating premise for a film. Ted Bundy is being played by Luke Kirby, and Bill Hagmeyer, the FBI agent, is being played by Elijah Wood. And occasionally we have experiences of the wider world involving people like Bundy's lawyer, played by Alexa Palladino, the prison warden, played by W.L. Brown, and Elijah Wood's immediate boss, Robert Patrick. But largely, this is just two people in a room talking. And I wish that director Amber Seeley had just dealt with that fact. It's not the worst thing in the world to simply have a conversation between two people. I mean, Steve McQueen, in his debut film Hunger, had a one-take conversation that took sort of like eight or nine minutes, I think it was, and it was absolutely riveting. But Amber Seeley just cannot let this conversation lie. Far too often, she tries to find the most dynamic angles, the most original camera moves. The first time that Bill Hagmeyer sits down in this prison interview room opposite Ted Bundy, we only ever see his face through the crook of Elijah Wood's elbow. That's how we are introduced to the face of Ted Bundy. It's like, really, did you need to do that? And all too often, she tries to find you know, dynamic camera moves and unusual camera angles, and it's just not worth it. It's not effective. But the conversation is. I mean, these are two very intelligent people who are trying to get the better of each other, trying to understand each other. You have the cat and mouse game. You know, Ted Bundy is notoriously not going to talk to the feds. 
and yet Bill Hagmeyer has come and tried to talk to him. And reluctantly, and somewhat, Ted Bundy is somewhat impressed by Hagmeyer and, and eventually does open up a little bit. And equally, he is trying to manipulate Hagmeyer. He is trying to play to his ego, and equally, Hagmeyer is trying to play to Bundy's ego. You're talking about his mind rather than his actions. And I found it notable that Bill Hagmeyer at one point specifically says he doesn't want to see crime photos, he just wants to see the reports. And the title of the film, No Man of God, I think is relevant. I mean, Bill Hagmeyer is a man of faith. In one of the very early scenes we see part of his morning routine is a morning prayer. And he does see the way through this morass of sickness uh, and depravity is through God. Uh, and having Ted Bundy towards the end of life, as you know, the end is getting near, becoming more and more involved in religion, Hagmire is kind of disgusted by that. So having these different mindsets and these different goals, each tries to get the upper hand on the other and at various points kind of succeeding. The conversation is fascinating. And Luke Kirby's portrayal of Ted Bundy is also fascinating. The world is obsessed with serial killers, I think that's fair to say, and therefore I have seen many different portrayals of Ted Bundy on screen. And the most recent I've seen is Zac Efron in the film Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. And in that, Zac Efron was really playing up the sexual charisma of Ted Bundy. Yeah, he was seen as such a nice boy, yeah, all these women flocked him and sent him pictures and all this kind of stuff. And Zac Efron was playing that up. And that is a common thread throughout many of the portrayals of Ted Bundy I have seen. The sexually charismatic man. Whereas this portrayal by Luke Kirby is definitely charismatic, but it's not so much sexual. It's much more soft-spoken. He's much more concerned about the cerebral side of things. He's much more concerned about trying to get the upper hand on this you know, professional psychologist, this FBI agent in front of him. He has a level of superiority. I mean, he thinks he is better than Hagmire, and he wants to play this cat and mouse game. And it's very soft-spoken, it's very engaging, but in a very low-key way. And yes, there is definite charisma there, but it's not necessarily that open, engaging charisma that I've seen in other portrayals of Bundy. I mean, they even have a sequence where, as part of Bundy trying to get the upper hand on Hagmire, we have a very direct equivalent of the Silence of the Lambs scene, where Bundy say, tell me about your childhood. And Elijah Wood starts recounting this story of his alcoholic father and the violence and the fear that... Elijah Wood had as a child. And it was very, very direct parallels between that recounting of an anecdote from his youth from Elijah Wood and what Jodie Foster was doing in Silence of the Lambs. I mean, for all I know, Robert Harris inspired that original speech in the book from these transcripts of the Bundy 
tapes. But yeah, it was a very, very striking and a very strong parallel between you know, the anecdote about the silence of the lambs that Clarice Starling recounts and this story that Bill Hagmeyer is telling about his youth to Ted Bundy. And that's the kind of film this is. I mean, the, the conversation, the mental sparring, the verbal sparring that these two people have. But all too often we go for the flash, the inventive visual style, trying to do anything you can to make it not look like it's just two people talking to each other. I wish that Ambassini had had the confidence to just show these two men talking to each other, because in my opinion, and I sort of like, like the writing, I like the two-handed film, you know, End of the Tour, South Side with You, the Before Trilogy, The Two Popes. I mean, that kind of aesthetic appeals to me. And this could have been so good if it had just gone that way. But no, we have all this fluff around it, all this flash around it, including completely unnecessary interstitials. At certain points, as the years tick by, there are moments between the years, I mean, where as 1983 turns into 1984, there's a montage of images. There's archive home movies. There's pictures of rolling waves. There's glimpses of sexuality, you know, somebody putting on a stocking, that kind of thing. There's, you know, the hairs on your arms standing up. All these little blips of imagery, blips of emotion happen at the transitions between the two years. And why? I mean, that's just style way, way over substance. That was completely unnecessary. And I don't think it actively added anything to the film. And also by the end of the film, we have some very overwrought and over-emotional pieces of acting from both Elijah Wood and Luke Kirby. I mean, as I said, most of the time it's very standard conversations. You know, yes, maybe a little bit manipulative on both sides, but it's ordinary conversations. But then we have moments of extravagance, of being completely over the top. It kind of reminded me of the TV show Hannibal. You, know, you have these moments where you feel like you were inside the mind of the killer. I mean, that, I think that's the effect that Amsili was trying to go for, and it didn't work. I, I think it, it, it's elaborate, it's exotic, it's not in keeping with the low-key tone of the rest of the film. I mean, essentially, we have a mind meld by the end of it, with Elijah Wood inhabiting the consciousness, the thoughts of Ted Bundy, and Ted Bundy inhabiting the consciousness and the thoughts of Bill Hagmeyer. And it just doesn't work. So, yeah, that was over-the-top and unnecessary. However, there is one moment of extravagance in this film which I do think completely works right near the end at the prodding of his lawyer alexa palladino luke kirby ted bundy agrees to an extensive tv interview with a renowned televangelist who has the ear of the governor of california 
And as far as the lawyer is concerned, maybe this televangelist will have a word in the governor's ear and stay the execution. That's the intention. But it's a completely self-serving interview. Very specifically earlier in the film, Ted Bundy has said that pornography had no effect on his crimes. It had no impact on his psyche. It wasn't the fault of pornography. But in this television interview, only days before he is scheduled to be executed, he outright says to this televangelist, it was pornography, it was pornography. I need to keep saying this message. Please stay my execution. So it's a completely self-serving, selfish thing that is going on. But as this conversation between Luke Kirby and this televangelist is going on, we are not looking at them. We instead zoom in in the background as one of the people, one of the women who is working on the TV crew. She seems to be the assistant director or the runner or something. She's carrying a clipboard. But we are gradually zooming in on her and the absolute disgust that is on her face. And actually also, I would say, a little bit of fascination that is on her face as Ted Bundy is speaking. And I thought that was very, very effective, very powerful. I'm not sure a male director would have chosen that shot, but Amber Seeley did. As this completely self-serving, misogynistic man is speaking, we are instead focusing on the woman in the room. We are focusing on the potential victim in the room. And that happens a couple more times by the end of the film uh, as this mind meld goes on and various women that Elijah Wood has seen out in public, he starts seeing them as a predator, as Bundy might. And we have flashbacks to various points there. And indeed, in that sequence, we also have a flashback to this particular woman in, in the interview room. But yeah, I thought that was one moment where the extravagance of the direction actually worked. Other than that, I think it went too far. I think it went over the top. I think it was so concerned with not just being two men in a room talking that it tried all the bells and whistles it could to make it not seem like that and make it seem more dynamic than it actually was. And if Amber Seeley had had the confidence to just let it lie, personally speaking, I think it might have been a better film. As it is, I think it's an okay film with some overly extravagant elements to it, but I still think it's basically recommended. I think the performance of both Luke Kirby and Elijah Wood are both excellent. I think the script by C. Robert Cargill slash Kit Lesser is very good based on the real life transcripts and, as it says at the beginning, the reminiscences of Bill Hagmire, who is still alive and happily retired. So yeah, I think the script is excellent, but they went a bit too far with the film. So I think this is worth watching. Again, probably not worth paying for, but yeah, I think there is something in No Man of God. And for me, it's a pretty solid meh. Netflix and chill. My Little Pony, A New Generation, is a 3D CG animated film. D, 
differing from the 2D animator style of the latest TV show, My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, which has gained something of a cult following with a wide appeal to a surprisingly wide amount of people, including adult men who call themselves bronies. I wouldn't classify myself as a brony, but I have thoroughly enjoyed My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. The CG feature film of the My Little Pony Friendship is Magic characters wasn't great, but this is an expansion, a spin-off from those Friendship is Magic characters, and is once again done in the CG style, and was apparently intended to have a proper cinematic release at some time this year, but with pandemic concerns still going on, it ended up being put onto Netflix. In this new generation of characters, the peace and harmony of Equestria that we've had in the Friendship is Magic TV show has mysteriously somehow completely collapsed. And now we are in a dystopia where the three different types of ponies, Earth ponies, unicorns, and Pegasi, live completely separately and are entirely fearful of each other. A very isolationist, very threatened experience for each of these individual species. Quite how this happened in the intervening years or maybe even centuries between this and Friendship is Magic, I don't know. But it does seem to be the speculation for quite a few YouTubers who have wondered how we got from Friendship is Magic to this. But regardless, we are in a world where the three separate types of ponies live entirely separately from each other and are intensely fearful of each other. Wanting to fight against this status quo is an earth pony voiced by Vanessa Hudgens, who, alongside her father, Michael McKean, in this film, actually believes that there should be friendship and cooperation between the three species and this fear-mongering does nobody any good. After her father dies, Vanessa Hudgens grows up a little bit and still tries to be positive, saying, no, we can all be friends, but fear-mongering in the community she lives in amongst Earth ponies is more important than anything else. But. One day, a unicorn shows up in this Earth Pony town, voiced by Kimiko Glenn, and all the Earth Ponies instantly panic, thinking that this unicorn is going to frazzle their mind and shoot laser bolts out of her horn, etc., etc. They're just panicking, and this innocent ingenue unicorn, Kimiko Glenn, just blithely wanders through the town. And eventually manages to find somebody who will listen to her in Vanessa Hudgens. And they decide that they need to go on a quest and actually actively try to unite all the ponies together. So they go off on a quest, pursued by the sheriff of the Earth Pony Town, voiced by James Marsden, who says he wants to arrest them for the dangerous 
activity of uh, accepting unicorns into this earth pony town but you know eventually he's going to come around to their side so they head off to the pegasus city and meet a pair of pegasus sisters played by sophia carson and the definitively queer coded liza koshi so this new group of five my little ponies try to reunite pony kind and come to some kind of understanding and there are songs and dances along the way this is pretty much exactly what you expect it to be i mean i like i said i i do like the my little pony friendship is magic tv show and i too am very very concerned how we got to this state in a new generation with everybody living apart and fear-mongering being part of the fabric of society. But I think that's actually kind of the point, and kind of what makes this film brilliant. On its own terms, I think My Little Pony A New Generation really, really works, because ultimately what this is a film about is tolerance. It's a film about how easy it is to see something as different and be fearful of it, be unwilling to accommodate it. And when you actually sit down and talk to somebody, maybe we can come to some kind of agreement. And isn't that relevant for the modern world? Where things are so scary or things are made to seem so scary that it is easy to isolate yourself and dismiss any type of friendship or cooperation or collaboration that you might possibly have and this is done in such a way that a younger audience will appreciate this i mean this is an animated feature with songs i have to say the songs are not particularly good I mean, this is not Lin-Manuel Miranda-level shit. I mean, the songs are done by somebody called Heitor Pereira, who's done a lot of music and songs for pretty low-rent animated features. And they're not great, but I do give him credit. It is kind of catchy. I mean, for an example, this is the opening song of the film, sung by Vanessa Hudgens. Now, I would classify that as not good, but catchy. And I think that is something that which can be levelled at pretty much all the songs in this film. But even in the songs, the agenda of this film comes forth. There is a song about forming a mob, which I think is actually very apposite for the film the character is voiced in the film by ken jeong another one of the surprisingly good voice cast of this film 
but the singing voice is someone named Alan Schmeckler, and this is Danger Danger from the My Little Pony movie. They're gonna steal thunder and pillage, they're gonna take over the village, don't just sit on your butts and do nothing and wait, let's enter a blind irrational And I think that sums up what the film is trying to do. It is trying to highlight the fact that when people want to, it is very, very easy to whip up hatred, to whip up suspicion, and in a worst case scenario, whip up violence. I mean, the whole economy of this Earth Pony town that we see at the beginning of the film and is introduced to us during that Vanessa Hudgens song, the whole economy seems to be based around a factory, and the factory creates technologies which are designed to protect you from the evil Pegasi and the evil unicorns. And even within the fiction of the universe, these anti-unicorn and anti-Pegasus contraptions aren't actually very effective, which I think in and of itself makes a point. But this is the whole basis for the political and economic situation that this Earth Pony Town finds itself in. We need to protect ourselves from the evil others and we are going to make money at it as well. And I think that's a very valuable thing to put in a film like this and to put questions about in this kind of film. Introduce a younger audience to concepts that say, question what you are being told. See for yourself the propaganda which is being spread. The idea that you're blindly following something is a good idea and the risks of something happening when you refuse to even acknowledge the fact that there is a different point of view when the smallest discussion of cooperation and collaboration comes up it is instantly shut down until this you know, group of five ponies make people realise, hang on, this is stupid. And I think it, it is noticeable that for the first time in this franchise, one of the major characters is male. And as I said, the, the first princess of the, the Pegasi we see, very, very similar to Rainbow Dash from the, the first iteration of Friendship is Magic. But nevertheless, she is distinctly queer-coded as far as I'm concerned. And there are other aspects, I mean, like the unicorn who shows up randomly in the Earth Pony Town has the open optimism of Pinkie Pie from Friendship is Magic, but also has the crafting talents of Rarity. So, you know, mixing and matching the aspects of the original characters into a new mix 
and coming up with a, an interesting balance, I think. I mean, we have you know the open optimism, we have the intelligence, we have the bravery. One of them is very, very concerned with being a social media influencer, which I think is a another very valid thing to make a point out of, even though pretty much every animated film that I've seen recently makes takes pot shots at social media dangers and social media influencers. But yeah, I mean, there's stuff here about blindly following orders, about the dangers of nepotism, about finding threat and danger when none actually exists. And putting it in this entertaining romp of a movie, I mean, yes, the songs aren't particularly good, the messaging is a little bit trite, but it is important. And the more times younger minds and younger hearts get to hear and absorb this kind of message, the better. So, yeah, even me as a cynical 40-something found something quite charming about My Little Pony, A New Generation. It is squarely aimed at a younger audience, and it has message in it in big capital letters. But nonetheless, I found it quite entertaining, quite charming. So for me, on its own terms, as a family-friendly animation, I did really like My Little Pony, A New Generation. It is on Netflix, and as far as I'm concerned, it's a yay. Not a particularly passionate yay. It's not going to be in my top ten films of the year or anything. It's probably not even going to be in my top animated films of the year. But what it is trying to achieve, it absolutely 100% achieves. So for me, that's a success. And on its own terms, My Little Pony, A New Generation, is a yay. Coming Attractions as I said at the beginning, this is the week of the Film Bath Festival, and most of my time is going to be taken up with watching films this week. I think I might end up watching four films this coming Thursday, but regardless. Briefly, I will say that one film that I have already seen at the Film Bath Festival and is already out, I will talk about since you can watch it at home. The Norwegian film Ninja Baby, which you can find on Curzon Home Cinema, I found delightful. I think it's an excellent film and I do recommend that. But a full review of everything I saw at the Film Bath Festival will be coming in a special episode fairly soon. While that is going on, the cinematic releases for this coming week are rather interesting. We have finally the latest MCU film from Oscar-winning director Chloe Zhao, Eternals. As I have repeatedly said on this podcast, I find it fascinating that by the time Eternals has finally been released into cinemas, Chloe Zhao has already won an Oscar. So an Oscar-winning director has directed a Marvel movie. It's quite extraordinary. But yes, a group of supernatural, godlike beings look on over Earth over the centuries, and obviously they don't do a very good job given the current state of the world, but apparently one of them's deaf and one of them's gay, so that could be interesting. And the fact that it's Chloe Zhao directing it, Chloe Zhao directing a Marvel movie, I am utterly fascinated by 
Eternals. And the other cinematic film I'm definitely going to have access to is the new film Spencer, which is a biopic of Princess Diana starring Kristen Stewart. Now, at first glance, that sounds utterly ridiculous, but I have long been a fan of Kristen Stewart as an actress. I think she's excellent. I'm not sure she could pull off Princess Diana, but I'm willing to give her a chance, particularly when she's being directed by Pablo Larraín, the Chilean director whose last English-language film was Jackie. So Pablo Larraín seems to be going into a period of making films about iconic female presences of the 20th century. So yeah, Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana, as directed by Pablo Larraín, I'm in, and I do want to check out Spencer. There is another film which is supposed to be coming out at the cinema this coming week. But as of yet, I have found no evidence of it actually being in any cinemas I can get to. But it does look really, really interesting, so I do want to flag it up. It is the new film from legendary American director Paul Schrader, The Card Counter. Now, Paul Schrader has a long history of intense and critically acclaimed films, going all the way back to American Gigolo. He got a lot of attention for his last film, First Reformed, which got a lot of critical praise, particularly for its leading performer, Ethan Hawke, but I actually didn't like First Reformed very much. But I am curious about this new film, The Card Counter, which stars Oscar Isaac as a former military interrogator and convict who is now a professional poker player and gets involved in a revenge scheme from a hot-headed young associate of his, and whether or not he goes along with this revenge scheme seems to be the gist of the film. But either way, Oscar Isaac is awesome. It's also got people like Ty Sheridan, Willem Dafoe, and Tiffany Haddish in it. So, yeah, the card counter does look pretty damn cool. And if... If I can find a cinema showing it, which at the moment seems unlikely, I will be checking that out as well. But regardless, it has been added to the list for its eventual release on streaming platforms. Speaking of which, added to the streaming list this week is an American indie film called Wild Indian. About a Native American played by Michael Greyeyes who in his youth did some pretty terrible things, or at least allowed pretty terrible things to be covered up, but now his past is coming back to haunt him, and he needs to decide whether or not he can live with his past and keep up with the comfortable life he has built for himself assimilating into the white world. So yeah, that looks like an interesting and intense little indie film, and I do want to check out Wild Indian. Also coming out this weekend on Apple Plus TV, we have the film Finch, which seems to be largely, or at least judging by the trailer, it seems to be largely a one-handed film starring Tom Hanks. 
as a man living in a post-apocalyptic hellscape who knows he is old and reaching the end of his life. So in order to protect his pet dog, he builds himself an AI robot. And that's going to end well, isn't it? But it looks like this ends up being a road trip with this mildly crazy old guy, Tom Hanks, an AI robot and a dog going in an old camper van across a post-apocalyptic wasteland. So that looks kind of interesting. And that is available this weekend on Apple Plus TV. On Netflix this week, there is the start of serious contenders that Netflix thinks they're going to get Oscars for. And the first one of those is a film called The Harder They Fall, which is a black-casted western in which a group of black outlaws led by Regina King hear that their enemy, played by Idris Elba, is being released from prison, so they gather up a posse and go and hunt him down. And it's got an awesome collection of black actors in this. Jonathan Majors, IZ Beats, Damon Wayans Jr., and Lakeith Stanfield, amongst many others. So, yeah, that looks like a revisionist black western. And that sounds pretty damn cool. And that's being released this week onto Netflix. So I do want to check that out. Also released this week onto Netflix is a very, very unusual film, which seems to have been getting a lot of attention from the festival circuit, including the London Film Festival, where it was one of the big highlighted films. It is a Mexican quasi-documentary called A Cop Movie. Now, as I understand it, director Andres Ruiz Palacios got a couple of actors to masquerade as Mexico City police people who also happen to be in a relationship with each other. I mean, it's a man and a woman in a relationship with each other. And in this documentary-style film, or is it a documentary? What is it? What is the blurring between truth and fiction? The experiences of these actors slash policemen tell us what it is like to be a cop on the dangerous and corrupt streets of Mexico City. Looks like a really fascinating experiment, if nothing else. And the fact it is being released onto Netflix means I have to make very little effort in order to see it. And therefore, I think I probably will, because I've got no idea what it's going to be, what it is. I mean, what is fiction? What is reality? What is documentary? What is narrative? I don't know, but I want to find out. So I do want to check out a cop movie on. Netflix. Also on Netflix is another very, very tangentially Oscar Beatty type film. It is the film that Hong Kong submitted to the International Film Oscar this year. This is not going to be a high priority for me, but it is on Netflix, so eventually I might get round to it because it's basically a sports biopic about the first Hong Kong athlete to win a gold medal at the Paralympics. 
And that's what this film Zero to Hero is. Looks like a pretty standard Triumph Over Adversity sports movie, but Hong Kong summited it, so I might end up watching Zero to Hero. Also rather interesting looking is an Italian film called Yara, in which a local female prosecutor digs herself in very deep into the death of a young girl. And judging by the trailer, much against the wishes of the local community, she tries to set up a DNA database. This is apparently based on a true story, which happened uh, a couple of decades ago. But yeah, the true crime narrative feature Yara looks rather interesting on Netflix. And at the dumb end of the Netflix releases this week is a film called Love Hard. Which, to all intents and purposes, looks like a Hallmark Christmas movie. But it has a relatively recognisable cast. Nina Dobrev plays an LA singleton who is in an intense online relationship and decides for the holiday season to jet across the country to surprise the hunky guy that she has been messaging with only to discover that she's been catfished and it's not the hunky guy she thought it was instead it's the nerdy asian guy jimmy o yang horrified at being uncovered jimmy o yang tries to make it up to nina dobrev by saying look i actually know the guy i used the picture of i will do my best to set you up with the real guy who you think you've been messaging with i'm sorry and I'm guessing, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that she's going to realise that what she really loved was the feelings she got. And even though Jimmy O'Gang is short and nerdy and Asian, she's the one I really love. I can guarantee you that's what the film is going to end up being. And I'm probably going to watch it anyway, because sometimes you just need a palate cleanser from all this really intense, really heavy stuff. So a Hallmark-esque Christmas movie seems like just the ticket. So Love Hard has been added to the list. So alongside those, my highest priorities in the streaming platforms at the moment on Disney+. Plus the broad comedy Vacation Friends. I still really want to get around to the Amazon Prime French movie, The Mad Woman's Ball. There's also the two Irish films on streaming platforms, Boys from County Hell, in which a road crew accidentally awakens an ancient Irish vampire, and also Redemption of a Rogue, a Groundhog Day-style film where a layabout cannot leave his small Irish town for his father's funeral and needs to deal with his past. And also, I believe being released on streaming platforms this week is the film The Beta Test, the latest film from writer-director Jim Cummings about a Hollywood executive who is tempted to participate in completely anonymous sex you know, blindfolds and everything, and then has to deal with the consequences to his relationship, to his standing, and 
seemingly it might also end up in murder. So yeah, that looks absolutely fascinating and I do want to check out the beta test. My highest priorities on Netflix at the moment are the Home Invasion movie with Frida Pinto, Intrusion, the kid-friendly spooky movie with Kristen Ritter, Nightbooks, the Collateral But Vampires movie, Night Teeth, the Polish cosy murder mystery, In For A Murder, where a housewife tries to solve the case of somebody who possibly might be related to her childhood friend, and also another Polish movie, Operation Hyacinth, with a communist-era 1980s Polish cop possibly realising, oh, I'm gay. So all of those look absolutely fascinating, and those are my highest priorities at the moment. So some of those will be in the next standard episode, alongside what will definitely be in the next standard episode of the cinematic films Eternals and Spencer. The next episode in this feed might be my Film Bath Festival special roundup, but that's either going to be the next thing in the feed or the thing after, so that's coming up very shortly, and some of those films are actually really, really imminent because there wasn't a lot of very advanced previews this year, which was unfortunate. I mean, I saw the new Celine Sciamma film, and that's only coming out in two weeks' time. So, yeah, that's only going to be just in time for the film actually coming out. But, yes, my Film Bath Festival special is coming, and a standard episode reviewing Eternals and Spencer. A reminder that the two yays in this episode were out at the cinema last night in Soho, which is a disturbing supernatural thriller slash ghost story got some really fascinating visuals some brilliant young actresses i mean i genuinely think that Anya taylor joy and thomas and mckenzie are two of the finest working actresses out there at the moment a beautifully poignant final performance from diana rigg and just some really really good stuff so yeah i really liked last night in soho and on its own terms I really did like My Little Pony, A New Generation. I think the messaging is strong and important. The songs aren't very good, but as an adult, that's not what you go for animation to. I think the message is important. The animation is fine. And on its own terms, I think My Little Pony, A New Generation is perfectly acceptable. So I do think it is worthy of a yay. And with that said, all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on home cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!